It's the Veterans Radio Hour. Proudly supported by McDonald's and their national salute to the U.S. military. Now, stay tuned for the Veterans Radio Hour next on the TRN Talk Radio Network. Tango Charlie Bravo, you're a go for the Veterans Hour. Hi, uh, she'll have a Happy Meal and I'll have the Big Mac. Dad, when will I be old enough for a Big Mac? When you're in college. College. Now, when you register specially marked McDonald's gift certificates at youpromise.com, a portion of the value goes into a YouPromise account for a child's education. So, the more specially marked gift certificates you buy, the more you'll save for college. I want to be a doctor. Hello, gift certificates. Sign up for free and get the details at youpromise.com. We love to see you smile. Welcome, one and all, to the Veterans Radio Hour. It's our tribute to all of those who served our great nation's armed forces, past and present, and their tremendous accounts of heroic duty and bravery. With your host, Brigadier General Dave Grange. And now, coming to you live from our Veterans Center studio, here is General Dave. Good evening and welcome tonight, September 15th, for our operation. Tonight we're focused on America's POWs and MIAs. And we have several heroes with us tonight on the show. In fact, sitting with me, we have two from the European theater. One that was a prisoner of war and one who evaded capture for 44 days in my last place of assignment, the Balkans. POW MIA Recognition Day is September 20th this year. And this is a day set aside to remind people of the pain and suffering that thousands of America's prisoners endured in all wars. They fought a daily war against hunger and disease, an ongoing battle to survive. And despite the suffering, despite the nightmares, Americans who became prisoners of war embody the essence of what we stand for as Americans. They've tasted oppression. They've experienced firsthand the culture of domination and they speak of America as the hope of the world. It's very dear to me this subject, very dear to me and what we do to get our prisoners of war and how we prepare our service members in case of capture. In Vietnam I had two of my soldiers become prisoners, private first class champion who is still missing and private first class Milo who was released at the end of the war. And in Macedonia, I commanded the unit that had three of our soldiers taken prisoners, Staff Sergeant Ramirez, Staff Sergeant Stone, and Specialist Gonzalez, who were released later on uh, out of uh, Yugoslavia back to our unit in Germany. Tonight, our show is going to be dedicated to a hero, a prisoner of war. His name is Captain Rocky Versace. A special forces advisor captured by the Viet Cong in 1967. He was executed by his captors in 1964 because he could not be broken. He just received the Congressional Medal of Honor posthumously. Colonel Nick Rowe, a friend of mine from special forces, a five-year prisoner of war himself, captured when he was a special forces office officer serving with Rocky in Vietnam 
said that Rocky was one defiant, hard son of a gun. Nick Rowe, by the way, was killed himself by Filipino terrorists several years ago. Pretty tough thing to happen after five years enduring POW status in the Mekong Delta of Vietnam. But back to Rocky. During communist indoctrination training, Nick Rowe would say about Rocky when he heard him talk, I'm an officer in the United States Army. You can force me to come here. You can make me sit and listen, but I don't believe a damn word you say. Rocky would tell his Viet Cong captors over and over again to go to hell in Vietnamese, in French, and in English. He was continuously tortured, starved, and kept in solitary until execution. The night before his execution, other prisoners of war heard Rocky singing, God bless America, at the top of his lungs. Here's today's military quote of the day, brought to you with support from retired Lieutenant Colonel Dan Bogievich. The military quote for the day really is tied to our prisoners of war, a missing in action. If you look back at several battles we've had, one not too long ago in Somalia, the streets of Mogadishu, Task Force Ranger. And what I'd like to do is share with you the fifth stanza of the Ranger Creed, something very dear to me and my fellow Rangers. And it goes like this. Energetically will I meet the enemies of my country. I shall defeat them on the field of battle, for I am better trained and will fight with all my might. Surrender is not a Ranger word. And most importantly, it goes like this. I will never leave a fallen comrade to fall into the hands of the enemy. And under no circumstances will I ever embarrass my country. Wow, amazing. That's uh, a quote that I think everybody should be hearing. The Veterans Radio Hour is now on and running. It's our second show. We're glad that people are beginning to tune in. We need more people now to begin supporting us. We need to know of other people we should dedicate this show to. We need to know of veteran organizations that are seeking some funding because we will be sending some money weekly to another veterans organization to help them out with one of their memorials or possibly a scholarship or something special that's dear to them. This way we can all connect and we'll be able to tell the rest of the world that's listening to us at www.veteransradiohour.com that this is part of it. We need to thank people like Andrew Palermo and Del Wilson, people who have already sent in some money and also have given us ideas of where we should take the show. You can call anytime our business office, 800-591-0020. Now, I think we should go back to General Dave. This week in history, the Incheon Landing, Korea, 1950. Very significant for the subject tonight because we still have almost 8,000 MIAs listed from the Korean War. Also, this month, in 1918, 5,000 members of the 85th Division from Camp Custer, Michigan, arrived 600 miles north of Moscow. Very few people know about this fight. They were there to battle with the newly formed Bolshevik Red Army. They stayed until 1919, along with 10,000 troops from the 8th Infantry Division that landed in Siberia, and they stayed until 1920. And a little-known fact is that soldiers are still missing 
from that expedition. And now we have to thank McDonald's once again for their support to get us on the air. And so we have a very special hero, a McDonald's Veteran of the Week. McDonald's salutes its heroes, and tonight it's both Mike Harden, McDonald's Vice President of Operations, New Orleans, Louisiana, and his son, Israel Harden, who embarked on a historic mission in the days following the September 11th attacks. Now a few months ago, he returned a hero to his country and his family. On September 19th, Israel Harden, a 28-year-old Navy F-18 pilot, boarded the USS Teddy Roosevelt aircraft carrier and embarked upon a six-month mission to fight terrorism in the Middle East, Southwest Asia. Part of the operation Enduring Freedom, Israel and 5,500 fellow Navy men and women served aboard one of the first carriers deployed after the September attacks. During his 189 days at sea, Israel was heavily involved in a war against terrorism, flying F-18 combat missions into Afghanistan. In late March, Israel and his colleagues returned to the U.S. amidst great fanfare and relief. We are very concerned about our son, says his dad, Mike Harden, who's been with McDonald's for more than 30 years. At the same time, we also were ecstatically proud of him. Mike said his son appreciated the country's support, especially the McDonald's family, to which Israel has belonged since he was born. Israel was particularly pleased to learn of McDonald's support through its national salute to the United States military campaign. We've always been proud of Israel in terms of serving the country, said Mike Harden. After the September 11th attacks, he became a part of history in a way that so few people have the opportunity to do. In our eyes, Israel can accomplish anything now. Israel's future plans include either becoming a flight instructor or attending Top Gun school. He's also busy planning his wedding. Thank you, Mike Harden, and thank you, Israel. And good luck on that wedding. I have the honor, and it truly is an honor, to introduce our first guest tonight, who's live here in the, in the studio. And uh, this is an infantryman, Tom Jordanian, who was captured during the Battle of the Bulge in the Ardennes as a private, serving in the 394th Infantry Regiment of the 99th Infantry Division in World War II. On December 18, 1944, his company was overrun by the 12th SS Panzer Division, after a fight, I might add. His group was held at Stalag 4B in Mulleberg, Germany, and then later he was sent to adjacent towns for forced labor. He was a POW for four and a half months, liberated on April 26, 1945. I'd like to ask you tonight, uh, TJ, if I may, uh, how, how did the capture occur? What happened? Well, the battle actually started on the uh, Saturday morning on December the 16th. We had been online uh, for the previous five weeks, uh, almost like being in bivouac, and uh, uh, it was very quiet on that so-called Western Front. I might add that our division had a, a division front of 20 miles, which was four times the normal uh, accepted uh, spread for a division of, of five miles. So our line was very thin and porous, and on um, on the morning of uh, December the 16th, uh, uh, the counterattack started that became known as the Battle of the Bulge. And we uh, did a fire mission with our cannons. I was in the cannon company. And we uh, withdrew to a, to a previous uh, anti-aircraft uh, position that had been abandoned by the 90-millimeter uh, gun crews. 
And in the early morning hours of December the 18th, we were badly mauled and virtually overrun, and, and most of our company were taken. Uh, amazingly, our killed in action that night was very few, but it included a, a very uh, good body of mine. And uh, from then on, it was uh, back into Germany. Yeah. Now, you were taken into Germany, uh, put in a camp, you did some forced labor, uh, and then you were there four and a half months, and then how, how, were you, how were you rescued? Well, the rescue was unique in the sense that we were not liberated in the classic uh, uh, manner of uh, uh, the GIs coming and storming the camp. Uh, the day before the actual liberation, uh, all of us foreign elements in this town, the POWs and slave labor, were assembled at the town hall on April the 25th. It was a very nice spring day, and they started marching us. Now, two of the guys and I were at the point. Uh, we Americans were leading this whole column. And as the night wore, as the night came and wore on, we realized that our escort had t taken off. And we just kept on going until we ran into a lone GI with a cloth tape stretched across the road as, as a sentry. And the uh, halter, I was shooting. Hey, don't shoot. It's just us guys, you know. <laughs> and uh, they, the, but in the meantime, the, the, the civilian slave people had been breaking ranks and going, taking off cross country. We just stuck to the road. We ran into this, uh, to the GIs. And they took us to their company headquarters, and now it's daybreaking on April the 26th. And um, we were interviewed or interrogated by, S by an S2 uh, major who told us that the Germans had never uh, reported us as POWs, that we are still MIAs. So he took our, all of our particulars and said, we'll let you people know that you're okay. I bet it was great to see those guys. It was terrific. Yeah, I bet. Hey, sitting next to you on your right flank, a uh, good friend of yours, I think, is Tom Tamaraz, uh, Tam right? That's right. And uh, <coughs> welcome again. And, and uh, can you just take a, a quick minute, and, and uh, you were the Army Air Corps, World War II? That's right. And you were shot down over the Balkans? Over Yugoslavia. Over Yugoslavia. And uh, could you tell us uh, how you got out of that predicament? Well, I got out of that by surrendering to three young ladies who were on top of the mountain. <laughs> they were looking for an airman who had parachuted down. And uh, I succumbed to their charm, I guess. And they took me down, put me in bed, and gave me a glass of Slebovich. And that helped me sleep and took the nerve off me. I stayed uh, with them for about three, four days until I got in touch with the Tito partisans and they walked us across Yugoslavia, 44-day hike, scenic Yugoslavia. And you, uh, and, and then where did you get picked up? Where did you get out? We walked to uh, Split, and then we got a boat and cruised back to Bari, Italy. And who, whose boat was it? Uh, Croatian, and uh, his greatest fear was when B-24s flew over, they dropped their bombs accidentally and blow up all kinds of Yugoslavian boats. Great story. Great story. And uh, right now, uh, we've got someone special. Let's go to the other side of the world during this World War II unfortunate era. We have uh, Father Ben Morin on with us. And uh, General Dave, I think this is somebody you're going to want to talk to. Yeah, uh, Father, before, before I ask you a question, I, I just want to, I just looked up something uh, the other day, and I just want to relate it to you. There was a ranger rescue operation. In fact, it's one of the most famous and successful ranger POW raids in history uh, at uh, Cabinatuan. And I don't know if I'm saying it right or not, but uh, I understand that you were there, but it probably happened after you had left to another camp. It's, uh, it's a POW camp in the Philippines run by the Japanese, and 121 rangers, along with the Filipino guerrillas, rescued Americans there 
uh, and that were captured on Bataan and Corregidor. They rescued 513. They suffered 30 casualties, and they killed almost 500 Japanese, some in the camp and some trying to exfil, and they knocked out 11 tanks. A very famous uh, story of, of success. And one thing I wanted to say that Article 4 of our Code of Conduct, which I don't believe you had during World War II, the Code of Conduct said, if I become a prisoner of war, I will keep faith with my fellow prisoners. I will give no information or take part in any action which might be harmful to my comrades. If I am senior, I will take command. If not, I will obey the lawful order of those appointed over me and will back them up in every way. And Father, I understand you were captured as a tanker, a platoon leader, Company B, 192nd Tank Battalion. You had five M3 light tanks in your fight. You were in the Philippines in 1941. When the Japanese evaded, you commanded the first tank attack of World War II, both whether it be in the Pacific or the European theater, which is a, a phenomenal piece of history. Your tank was destroyed. You and your crew were taken prisoner. You spent time in various camps. Uh, you are sent to Japan at the final uh, camps that you uh, were uh, uh, interned in. You were repatriated in 1945 when the Japanese surrendered. You became a Jesuit priest. You spent 38 years in Peru working uh, with the Indian Indi Indians, and you now live in Michigan. And Father uh, Ben Morin, thank you for being with us. I'm sorry it took so long, but this is a phenomenal story. I just wanted to hype it up a bit. Are you with us, sir? <coughs> yes, he is. Uh, Father, uh, the one thing about Article 4 that I read to you, you had some tough situations uh, because you were an officer, you were a platoon leader, and I know you were in charge of a certain part of a camp from your story. Can, could you relate that experience of what it means when you're one of the senior officers and you have responsibility and you have to worry about not only yourself but your men? Hello? Yes, Father Moran. Uh, your connection is very weak. You're not hearing us very well tonight. I cannot hear you too well. Okay. Can you speak up? Yes, Father, did you can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you now. Okay, you were a, an officer in charge of part of a camp, as I recall from your story. Can you relate to us the difficulties and being a leader, being in charge, where you have to worry about others, not just yourself, when you're a prisoner of war? That is quite true, yes. An officer is responsible for his men, and uh, in uh, Benetouan, I was asked to take over a company of 100 enlisted men, and it was very difficult because every morning I had to send out about 50 men to work on the wood, uh, send them out into the forest to work in the woodcutting detail for the kitchens, for firewood for the kitchens or send them out on the burial detail, whatever whatever came up. But I had to supply about 50 men uh, every morning, five days a week, six days a week. And uh, they were pretty bad shape, actually. They were all sick. Many had malaria and had, were, had fevers. All of them had uh, bothered by dysentery and beriberi, scurvy and pellagra. And uh, the big killers, though, were mal malaria and diphtheria. Uh, if a man had a, a, a fever from malaria, I wouldn't send him out. He would be excused from work. However, I had to, uh, I was under pressure by the senior American staff of the camp, Camp Cabanatuan, to, to uh, 
send out 50 men every every day. Wow. And uh, I think we have someone else on the line that you might know, a Lester Tenney. I know him well. He was in my outfit. Fine, great soldier. Lester, are you there with us right now? Yes, I am. Thank Lester, you. I believe um, you're involved with the Bataan Death March. I think General Dave's got a little bit of information. That is correct. Yeah, Lester, uh, I understand. I, You know, I have a copy of your book. Thank you. My Hitch in Hell. And I understand you're also a member of Company B, the 192nd Tank Battalion. Correct. And uh, and this is uh, this was one unbelievable experience with this book. Let me let me ask you another quick question before the station break, Lester. Yes, did you I ever have an opportunity to escape? Try to escape? Uh, I did. I tried to escape from from the first prison camp, which was Camp O'Donnell. And we were there. And after the first week, it was quite obvious that if you stayed there, you were going to die. The men were dying at three, four hundred a day. We had uh, one, one spigot of water. We had one ration of rice. The men were dying from dysentery, malaria, pneumonia. It was awful. And so I made an attempt to escape uh, at that time. Uh, I was uh, very fortunate to be able to get away for about a week until I was recaptured and brought back to Camp O'Donnell. And you were in this camp with uh, Father Ben Morin? No, I was, uh, Father Morin was in Cabana Tawan. And I didn't get to Cabana Tawan until about, uh, oh, I would say about August. They, they had me out on a work detail with uh, 90 other men. There were 90 of us that were put on a work detail to go back into Bataan and uh, try to salvage some of the equipment that was there uh -huh. for the Japanese. Did you, did you, uh, you, you know about the book Ghost Soldiers and the, yeah, the Ranger right. Rescue. When was that in time? Compared to, to you, Lester, and, and the father, when was that? When was the time of that? Was it? Well, the Ghost Soldiers uh, originally was intended to be a story of the um, of the recapture of the men in Cabana Tawan in 1944. In order to uh, properly uh, be able to write the book to let the reading public know what happened, uh, the author was able to wanted to spend the first few chapters talking about the Bataan Death March to sort of set the stage of what happened in Cabana Tawan. Well, we'll be back for that uh, story. You stay on the line with us. Uh, this is the Veterans Radio Hour. We'll be back right after station breaks. You're listening to the Veterans Hour on the Talk, 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 Talk Radio Network. The Veterans Hour now returns to duty on the Talk Radio Network. The Veterans Hour proudly presents our military hero story of valor. Okay, Kenny, I, I think we're going to go back to Vietnam for the story for this week. Um, the, the story was in the American Legion magazine a while ago. Senator John McCain talked about this uh, several times. And it's about Lieutenant Commander Mike Christian. He is our hero of the week. And the story goes like this. In the beginning, the North Vietnamese had kept us in small cells, one or two prisoners in each. During the final years of our imprisonment, they moved us into larger rooms, where as many as 30 to 40 men lived together. This change was a direct result of public pressure put on the North Vietnamese by the American people. Captors began to allow us to receive packages and letters from home. A Navy officer, Lieutenant Commander Mike Christian, received various packages. He gathered bits and pieces of cloth from each package. Using these pieces of cloth and a piece of bamboo he had 
fashioned into a needle, he sewed a United States flag on the inside of his shirt, one of the blue pajama tops that we all wore. Every night in our cell, Mike would put his shirt on the wall, and we would say the Pledge of Allegiance. <laughs> it was the most important ritual of our day, to see the flag of the United States again, and to have the chance to proudly reaffirm our commitment to our country was truly inspiring. One day, a guard unexpectedly entered the room as we were reciting our pledge. The guards immediately ripped the flag off the wall. They dragged Mike out, and he was beaten brutally for the next several hours. Finally, they threw him back into the cell. Later that night, as we were settling down to sleep on the concrete slabs that were our beds, I looked over at the spot where the guards had left Mike. Under the solitary light bulb hanging from the ceiling, I saw Mike, still bloody, his face swollen beyond recognition, carefully gathering bits and pieces of cloth. He was sewing a new American flag. Amazing, fabulous man. And now, the Veterans Radio Hour salutes the active service person of the week. This is a man or a woman we are gonna recognize every week that's on active duty, made possible by a generous contribution from Richard and Lee Gack of AmeriCare Sanitation and Supply in Addison, Illinois. General Dave. Tonight we're going to salute a sailor, boats and mate second class, Peter Donaldson. He's deployed on Operation Enduring Freedom as we sit here tonight. Right now he commands a rib boat on the USS Cushing in the Persian Gulf. A big hua from Vet Center to you there, uh, boats and mate Donaldson. Good luck to you. Okay, boats and mate, yes. And uh, on our show, we uh, always have uh, uh, one problem it's or situation, just like they have in every company. There's always Sergeant Grunt. And uh, General Dave, uh, Sergeant Grunt's here again with a question or a situation. Sergeant Grunt, come on in. Yes, sirs. Sergeant Grunt here, General, sir. You know, I can't believe the mess hall is already closed, and after that work detail, I'm starving, sir. Could you please order it open again? Sergeant Grunt, how many times do I have to tell you, eating is a privilege, not a requirement? Oh, uh, yes, uh, yes, sir, yes, sir. I, Move I, I, out. I don't know what I was thinking, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, have a good day, sir. Yeah, the Grunt, the Grunt. Okay, Sergeant Grunt, thank you very much. I hope you find a snack somewhere. Uh, we still have all of our guests online, and I think we're going to bring on a, a new one just for a moment. Um, I'd like you to meet uh, Dr. Kushner. Yeah, Dr. Kushner, uh, are you in Daytona Beach right now? I am, Daytona oh. Beach, Florida. Okay, I understand you pr have practiced as a, as a doctor around the world to include India, Peru, Turkey, Haiti, and, and Tanzania. Uh, you entered the Army in 1965. You deployed to Vietnam in 1967. You have been awarded the Silver Star and the Purple Heart, as well as a Prisoner of War Medal. You served with the 1st Squadron, 9th Cav, 1st Air Cav Division, you were captured to December 1967 and were not was not released until 16 March 1973. In 1973, I believe, uh, or after that release, you were uh, named a medical military. I'm sorry, military flight surgeon of the year. And in 2001, you were inducted into the Army Aviation Hall of Fame. Now. One thing that uh, I learned in SEER training, which is uh, survival, evasion, resistance, escape, uh, what I was taught with the Code of Conduct Geneva Convention, 
that captured medical personnel and chaplains must be allowed to perform their duties of their profession for fellow prisoners of war. In your experience as a prisoner of war, were you allowed to perform medical help to your fellow prisoners? Uh, no, I was not. You know, I um, had uh, the same SEER training that you did. I, was a, I, I went through flight surgery training at Fort Rucker, Alabama and Pensacola and went through E&E training and they told us that we uh, would be given Geneva Convention cards, white with a red cross, and uh, when we were captured we were not really POWs but detained personnel. And if uh, the enemy didn't recognize us as such, we were just supposed to leave. It was supposed to be funny at the time, I guess it was. Yeah, uh, I, I, as a doctor, I mean, it must have really been very tough not to be able to, to help uh, uh, your teammates when you knew that uh, you could probably give them some comfort? Well, I was held for three and a half years in the South, and uh, in that time, 27 Americans and five West Germans came through the camp while I was there. Ten Americans died, nine of them in my arms, and two of the German nurses died, essentially, in my arms. And uh, I was I tried to help people as much as I could with knowledge about hygiene, and, and we were able to uh, hoard some the, what little medicine we had and rusty razor blades and things like that, but I was not allowed to openly practice medicine. But uh, when one of my uh, comrades was a half an hour away from dying, the Vietnamese would usually come down with a little pot of uh, medicine and the syringes and needles and say, okay, you can do what you can now. Uh, but by then it was way too late. Would you, the code of conduct, um, did it really help you at all or would you recommend uh, modifications to that code? Well, as a matter of fact, I was uh, on a select committee in 1975, I believe, uh, with seven or eight other POWs, including uh, Medal of Honor winner Bud Day, uh, we met with the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff at the Pentagon and we did um, uh, recommend some mild changes to the Code of Conduct, but nothing substantive. I think the Code of Conduct is a great standard that uh, we all have to try the best we can to uphold. Uh, but. Uh, when it becomes impossible to uphold, then we have to just do the best we can. And Doc, that's what the committee recommended. Yeah. Uh, Doc, uh, I'm going to ask, Lester, are you still with us? Lester? Yes, I'm here. Uh, you, you probably heard Doc Kushner talk about uh, medical support yes. in the camp. Uh, what about you? I, you talked about uh, the lack of water, uh, potable water, the amount of food. What about medical uh, support? We had, we had next to nothing in medical support. Number one, the medics that were captured were not captured with any equipment or any medical supplies. So we had next to nothing in Cabana Tawan or in, in O'Donnell, which is the most important one. But uh, let me just share with you the fact that, uh, uh, as in my case, I was ended up on a ship, and they ended up sending me to Japan. They took me to Japan, where I spent three years uh, working as a slave for a Mitsui company, uh, shoveling coal in a coal mine. And uh, we had American doctors that went over there with us in our first group of men, and those doctors were allowed to only do certain things with the prisoners, 
And the Japanese made the decision of how many men would go to work every day out of every barracks. So our American officers had little or no say in the matter. As an example, a barracks of 50 men had to have a total of 45 men every day go to work. They didn't care if they were sick or dying, but they had to have 45 go to work. They just had to have the quota. Absolutely. And our medical, our one doctor, Dr. Tom Hewlett, he ended up going into the guardhouse one day for one period. He went in for one week because he would not send the men to the coal mine that the Japanese were forcing him to. He said, I can't do that. They're they, they should be in a hospital, and you want me to send them to work, and I won't do it. They put him in the for one week. Yeah. No food or water. So we had nothing like uh, like they're talking about. We had no medicine. We had no uh, no mail. We had no supplies. We had no packages. When I hear the other people talk about the fact that they did get some uh, packages and they did get some supplies and they were able to do certain things, that was certainly not the way it was in Japan. I think uh, most of the experiences in the Orient uh, were similar to what you're saying. Father Ben, are you with us? Yes. Uh, I think, uh, you know, in your story, uh, I read some things about the same thing with dysentery and, and people being sick, and if you didn't grow your own food, if you didn't uh, figure out how to help each other in rudimentary techniques, you would die. Is that uh, yes. Uh, in Cabana to one, if a man had very serious uh, diarrhea as a result of dysentery or whatever, uh, they had there were no medicine whatsoever. The medics would say, get yourself some charcoal, chew it up as fine as face powder, and eat it. That's supposed to cure your dysentery. That's, that's, uh, so a man would go to the cook fryers, pick up some charcoal, and chew it up. And yeah. hopefully it would help, uh, help, help the symptoms. I think in, uh, in, uh, in the Pacific, uh, World War II and in, uh, in Vietnam, uh, the medical, the food, it was pretty tough. I'd like to turn back to TJ. Uh, captured in the Ardennes in World War II, infantrymen, and, and, and let him talk about, because he was in a forced labor situation as well uh, after capture. What was the medical support provided? What was the food provided in your situation? There was no medical provided. I think the thing that uh, uh, helped us to get through is, uh, I know in my own case, I was probably in the finest, my finest physical c condition of my life. And uh, in the matter of food, uh, it was such substandard that uh, we were we were malnourished, and uh, I I I couldn't even uh, and uh, walk faster than a, just a, 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 a halting walk. Uh, case in point, we had some duty uh, unloading. Uh, we were supposed to unload uh, freight cars at, at at the railroad station, and fortunately, by the time we got there, uh, our fighters came over and strafed the hell out of the place, and. Uh, so our guard got us, took us back, you know, back to the uh, lager, back to the lager. Los, los, machnel. Uh, well, hell, you know, <laughs> you you run, I'll I'll follow behind you. You know, I'll get there when I get there. You know, um, so frostbite and mal uh, malnourishment uh, was the primary thing. And uh, as far as any medical was concerned, uh, we didn't have any. And and ho fortunately, we really didn't uh, come to that point where we needed it. Yeah. Uh, you know, one thing that uh, really bothers me about this, and I think a lot of the listeners feel the same way about uh, our American service members that were pr prisoners of war, is that it clearly states Article 13 of 1949 Geneva Convention that this will not happen. 
And, you know, we get a lot of, right now there's a lot of stuff going on about Guantanamo Bay and that. I'll tell you, I'd rather be a prisoner in the American hands any day than the experiences that these veterans uh, have experienced here. Yes, right on. You're listening to the Veterans Radio Hour coming live every Sunday at 9 p.m. at www.veteransradiohour.com or at one of the radio stations hopefully soon near you. Next week, we'll be talking about disabled veterans and what's being done. So stay tuned. We'll be back in a few moments after this break. At ease, soldier. The Veterans Hour with General Dave will settle in again after a short break break on the Talk Radio Network. Way Anchor Mates, the Veterans Radio Hour now continues full speed ahead on the Talk Radio Network. Aye, aye, sir. A little bit on the POWMIA update uh, from Korea. The remains of seven U.S. soldiers lost in battle more than 50 years ago were finally returned. And as I said earlier, you know, there's still thousands missing from the Korean conflict. These seven soldiers were found around the Chosun Reservoir area behind, uh, that were believed to be from the 7th Infantry Division. Uh, this is a big challenge in, uh, from Korean veterans, and the reason being, uh, MIAs from Korea, is that only 42% of their family members can have given DNA samples. It makes it very difficult for those recovery teams to, uh, and identification teams to do their business. That's 42%? Only 42% have provided the government with DNA samples wow. to help in the, in the identification recovery system. Uh, and speaking of that, I want to talk about three, real quick, three uh, agencies that are involved in the POW-MIA issues. One is the Department of Defense POW uh, Missing Personnel Office. They're in charge of policy, what we will do, how we will resource search and rescue aircraft, rescue teams. Uh, blood shits that you know that you would use for evading. Uh, it's, it gives you information on the language wherever you get shot down or captured. Uh, what to do an interrogation. They're in charge of all the policy making decisions. The other is a joint task force full accounting called JTFFA. They have uh, repatriated almost 500 service members since the end of the Vietnam War, and uh, they are all over Indochina right now, uh, and a lot of effort also in Korea. But it's pretty much from uh, Korea, Vietnam, but mostly Vietnam era and forward. And then you have the Central Identification Labor Laboratory located in Hawaii, and that's where the DNA and those type of things come in, identification of uh, par parts of, uh, of our fallen comrades that, that do come back are recovered. Now, the U.S. position today on prisoners of war and uh, missing in action is as follows. Although we have thus far been unable to prove that Americans are still detained against their will, the information available to us precludes ruling out that possibility. Actions to investigate live, live citing reports receive and will continue to receive necessary priority and resources based on the assumption that at least some Americans are still held captive. Should any uh, report prove true, we will take appropriate action to ensure the return of those involved. Boy, I hope so. I mean, I cannot, I just cannot stand the idea that America would leave a fallen comrade behind. And, and luckily, and, and we thank you, we, tonight, our guest, TJ, captured uh, during the Battle of the Bulge, uh, Tom, uh, shot down over Yugoslavia with a 44-day evading uh, operation. Uh, with Tito's forces, Lester, the Bataan Death March, Father Ben, 
also captured in the Philippines, led the, led the first tank attack in our army during World War II. And Dr. Kushner, all those years in, in prison south and north uh, during the Vietnam conflict, trying to take care of his comrades the best he can with the skills that he has given. And it all goes back to the whole thing boils down to we don't leave a fallen comrade. And you may have remember the fight in Mogadishu in Somalia in uh, 1993, October 3rd. A lot of my friends, Task Force Ranger, we don't leave a fallen comrade. And it goes like this. It's a powerful thing to know that if you go down, someone's going to come get you. That's the way we operate. It reminds me of a story in Vietnam. There was a rifle platoon, paratroopers. They got in a bad fight. One guy went down further out in front of the platoon as they came back to a hasty defensive position. And a guy was getting ready to run after his buddy, and the lieutenant says, don't go, it's too much fire, you're going to get hit. And a guy broke away from his lieutenant, he bolted forward, and he got to his buddy, and as he's dragging his buddy back, he got hit. And they both fell over the berm right there into the lieutenant's arms. And the lieutenant said, why did you go? Why did you go? I told you not to. Now I've lost both of you. And he said, because when I got to Fred, he told me, I knew you'd come. Mm -hmm. I knew you'd come. And that's powerful. That is more powerful than any kind of jet fighter, any kind of new high technology uh, machine gun, anything, any kind of piece of equipment. Is that brotherhood of arms, that idea that I will not leave a fallen comrade. So, and I remember when our, our three soldiers were taken to Macedonia into Serbia, and we didn't know exactly where they were at the time, but I, I told my people, I don't care what country they're in at the time, if we can get them, we're going to just go. We're not going to ask anybody, nothing. We're going to launch, and we're going to get them. I don't care if it's across the border, which at the time we weren't allowed to go into. But you don't leave fallen comrades. And if we know we got some people left behind, whether it's from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Somalia, wherever, it's our duty as a country to take care of our veterans, our fallen comrades, those that may be left behind. And I know now in units that I've been with, you just don't get in that situation. If you lose a few to save your fellow comrades, you do it. That's, what you, that's, that's the responsibility. We salute all of you, all you gentlemen. A big salute to these five wonderful people that have joined us today. And now, a little bit of interest for you, General Dave, uh, TJ here, the, the man that was captured at Battle of the Bulge. He's got a beautiful son and a wife, and Sons has a wife who recently collaborated to produce a very optimistic, patriotic song, which is the one we're going to use tonight to go out with. It's a song of national spirit. It's called Proudly Lead the Way. We're going to play some of it for our audience right now. Huh, wonderful. That's Proudly Lead the Way. One nation under God stands undivided. Proud of what we've done and proudly leading the way, all these great soldiers today. This has been the Veterans Radio Hour, and we're, of course, asking everybody to uh, write to some of the radio stations in your town. Let them know that 
This show is available, very easily available for them on Sunday evenings. Or tune in on the web, www.veteransradiohour.com. You can call us at 800-591-0020. And we're out of here, General Dave. All right, and thank you again, Hua, and it's a privilege to be in this brotherhood of veterans. This show was inspired by the stories of three World War II veterans. My father, Ralph L. Hack from the CBI Theater, Robert Porky Sabarbro, 3rd Cavalry Division, Philip L. Leonard, 2nd Marine Division. These stories are things that we all need to remember as Americans. Hats off to you all. I'm Lance W. Hack. For the Veterans Radio Hour, good night and keep listening.